We welcome you to the media ministries of the Gathering Church in the Countryside YMCA of Mainville. As we love the Lord and each other, we're trusting that God would use us to plant a church in every YMCA around the world. To this end, would you join us? We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and in community groups throughout the week. As you listen to this resource, our prayer is that your love for Jesus would grow deep and your love for others would be seen and heard. Let's pray together. That's our prayer this morning, Lord. That's our prayer for our whole life. That we as individuals, our, our lives would be lived in such a way where you would receive all the glory. That we would proclaim your goodness with our works, with our, our mouth, with our thoughts, everything that we do and say. Would you help us in that? And also we pray just as a community that that would, that would mark our church. So we love you. We ask that um, as we sit under your word this morning, it's inspired, it's written by you um, for your glory and for the church. I pray that uh, it would be a fruitful time, that people would be strengthened and built up, that you would use it to sharpen and to correct and to comfort and to mold and, and to build and shape this body for your sake. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Welcome to church. If we haven't said so already, we're glad you're here. Kids, at this time, you're dismissed. Ages 7 and down can head to the Gathering Lights ministry where we will teach you the gospel. Pretty awesome. It's great. And if you're visiting here, we usually don't wear so much orange, but uh, if you're wondering what's happening, I am from Green Bay, Wisconsin, the motherland, America's team, and, um, and we, we have fun in this church. And so uh, uh, thank you for sharpening your pastor. Real sandpaper-like sanctification, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, hey, before we just jump into the Word, um, we, we've just got to keep on celebrating something that happened uh, this past weekend in that uh, Corey and Chelsea Moore, who were divorced six years ago, by the power of the gospel, got married yesterday. And so, it's just awesome. It's awesome. Um, we, uh, we, we, the Newmans, um, have observed that um, that divorce is something that is uh, very common, um, especially in this area. We've seen it just really run rampant, and um, you need to be reminded of good stories like this that God really does heal and restore and bring people back together, uh, there is great hope um, in, in brokenness. And what we do here on Sunday morning and, 
when we read the Scriptures and when we sing and when we pray, it is not ethereal. It's not just niceties. There is a power that comes from the Gospel that actually changes lives. And we saw it happen this past weekend. And we were all witnesses to it the past, I don't know, six months or so, would you say? You know? um, and so um, celebrate it often. And uh, let's have it be ever on our lips that um, God restored um, um, the brokenhearted, as it says in Psalm 34. So um, can we just pause and pray for them right now? Let's do that. And so, Lord, we thank you for the Moore family, for Phoenix and for Lexi, for Tristan, for Corey and Chelsea. What an awesome family. And we just praise you that by your spirit, you have shown a mighty work. And we're going to recognize that as a church and celebrate it and um, cling to it because there will be stories that will come in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years that bring about discouragement. There will be people that want to get divorced in this church. There will be married couples who grow weary and tired of each other, and they would be, they're, they're going to be tempted to go, maybe my life would be just a little bit better if I just lived by myself and I, if I did my own thing. But I pray, Lord, that they would cling to this story that Corey and Chelsea... Uh, it, it's just beautiful how the gospel has been made so clear through their marriage. And so we pray for all of our marriages... Everyone who's married in here, we pray that you would bind us together, that God's word would, that we would be tethered to it so closely. And when we experience the ups and downs, that uh, because we're sinners, we pray that our marriages would shine brightly for the gospel of Jesus. And we pray that no one would get divorced. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's open our Bibles together to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14. So imagine you just moved into the area and you and uh, your family are visiting the little Miami schools. Okay? So you and your spouse are checking out schools and, and, um, and seeing what they're going to be like, okay? The dad, I'm going to totally stereotype, so don't get offended, okay? But the dad shows up in the school and really there's two things on our minds, right dads? Where's the gym, right? What's the weight room going to look like? And is my boy or is my girl going to get all ripped and going to get a college scholarship from these sports teams. That's how us dads typically think. And what's the education like? What textbooks are they using? And is my kid going to get a scholarship as a result of being at this school? Like, what's the quality? What's the excellence? Okay? So as, as he is walking through the hallways, he's checking out the facilities. Is this top-notch? He's on his phone. What's the other schools like? Okay, this one's better. My kid's going to turn out better. Okay? That's how his dads think. Moms, 
also think like that with relation to their child. They have in mind what is best for their kid. They have their interests in mind. But there's also another pulse that ladies have. You see, they're watching how teachers relate to the students. They peek their head into the freshman class, and they're watching to see if the girls are talking behind each other's backs. And they're walking through the lunchroom, going, the athletes are sitting with the theater people. There's, There's a relational connectiveness that I like here. My child will have a good education. That same couple, okay? Which, by the way, which one's right? Both of them are. We need both. We need both. That same couple, they get in the car. They drive away. The dad goes, well, sweetheart, what'd you think of that school? And she goes, wow, they're, they really treat each other kind. And he goes, what? what has, that has nothing to do with education. Right? And the wife just smiles. Right? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. That same couple gets in the car, and on Sunday they go to church. Okay? The husband, he's checking out the pastor. Is he right? Is everything that he's saying orthodox? Are they teaching on the line? Are they getting it right from the pulpit? Are they teaching according to God's Word? Were the songs that we were singing, were they theologically rich with content? Were they accurate? Right? The wife. Got a little different pulse. She's also considering the orthodoxy of the church. She's also considering the songs and the words and the content. But she's also got a relational pulse on the church. She comes away as they get in the car and they're driving. The husband goes, well, what would you think of that church that we visited this morning? And she goes, ha, did you see how they treated each other? It was awesome. Did you see how they greeted us? Did you see that when they talked to us, they weren't looking over us or through us? They actually cared about what they were asking us? And the husband goes, what does that have anything to do with church? I was looking to see if they were getting it right. I was, I was, I was like testing to see if they were orthodox. And the wife says, so was I. See, you were testing to see if they were orthodox theologically. But I was wondering if they were orthodox in their community. How they were treating each other. You see, which one's right? They're both right. How do you know? How do you know a community is orthodox? You just go on their website, find a nice doctrinal statement, and say, ah, they got all the right answers. Partially, yes. But more so, Not more so, but equally, when you go in and amongst the people, has the gospel, has their orthodox doctrine permeated how they love one another? That's what Paul's getting at today.
And the interesting thing is, it's not always easy to see. It's not always just a drop in the bucket. How do you know if a church is orthodox? What is the litmus test with regards to treating each other? Because upon a first visit, or spending a first lunch with a person, or hanging out as a community group for the first time, it's like, yes, they treat each other awesome. This church is really loving. These people just really are kind to one another. Guess what? Non-Christians can be really kind to one another when everyone agrees. (laughs) But it's when you disagree that the non-believing world looks in and goes, wow, Christians can love each other even when they disagree? Now that's a different power. That's something that I've got to check out. Paul, as you know, spends the first 11 chapters in Romans establishing theological orthodoxy. And then in chapter 12 and on, he establishes and brings up and colors and talks about what it means to be an orthodox community. So, this morning, the title of the sermon is Orthodox Community from Romans 14. And here's the cool thing. I mentioned the litmus test. This is not Paul through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't just come in a church dip down his litmus test and go, nope, or yep, or sorry, move along, you failed. But rather, he equips the church. He pastors us and brings us along. He helps us understand what it means to be an orthodox community. Not just to get all the right answers, although that's absolutely essential to be accurate to God's word but how to treat one another in a God-honoring way. So let me ask you this before we jump in. Anyone in your life that you disagree with? You want to know how to live for Jesus around people who don't think like you? Do you think there's a need for this sermon? I think so too. I think so too. So there's four questions that's going to govern our time together. Here's the first one. I'll read the question. I'll read the verse. Here we go. Number one, am I welcoming? So the first test of community orthodox is, am I welcoming? Here's verse one of verse 14. Follow along with me as I read the scriptures. As for the one who is weak in faith, Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. So let's pause there. Am I welcoming? Let's talk about what it means to be weak in faith. So this is not just immature in the faith. This is not a person who is sinful or just always tempted to sin. It's not that kind of weak. This is not a person who is weak in character. This is a person who is weak in faith. 
when we say weak in faith, this is not a person who just has a difficult time trusting God in hard times. Rather, this is a person who lacks a full depth of understanding with regards to the full scope of Scripture. This person has built his or her convictions on a foundation that is lacking. They have a narrow conscience, but they're not sinful. They're weak in faith. So the question is, how do you help this person? How do you help them grow? And the initial exhortation for the church is that you would welcome them and not quarrel or fight with them. Okay? You see that word in verse 1, opinions? The word used is dialigzomai. Okay? You hear that word dialogue in there? Dialigzomai. Dia, two, like logos is, is built in there, which is words. So it's two people who are exchanging words face to face over something that is, that is not essential to the Christian faith. It's opinions. Uh, the early church called this matters of indifference. Okay, These are disputable matters. Uh, tertiary issues, you might say. Okay, And um, the weak in faith are holding to a, bis- a position that, it's, it, catch me, it's a little bit nuanced, is not wrong, it's within the bounds of orthodoxy, but Paul doesn't want them to stay there. Okay? So catch this. Not everything uh, fits under the bounds of matters of indifference in the Christian life. But here are a few, just to be specific, okay? Um, uh, let's go historical for a second. The Puritans, they really wrestled and argued with should a man and a woman wear a symbol on their finger that they're, that they're married? Shouldn't it be enough to speak it? And man, that caused dissension in the Puritan time. Um, matter of significance, importance, now we would say... Probably not. Man, I think they could have maybe gotten over that a little quicker, right? Uh, Here's another one. How and when the millennium will be established. Um, I think the church has wrestled with that. Um, Probably the church these days has understood not an essential issue to be a Christian. We shouldn't argue so much on this one. Um, There are differing views within orthodoxy, within Christendom, that we can accept. Uh, Here's another one. Uh, Should I homeschool my kid or should I go public school with them? It's an important one for a church um, because you need to hear this. Both are good. (laughs) Both are good. Like we're not a homeschool church. Neither are we a public school church or just a Christian church. Are there pros and cons to each of them? Yes. Yes. Do we need to be honest with those? Yes. But We're not going to be like self-righteous and say that this is the only way to do school. Here's another one. Vaccinations! Isn't that great? I'm sorry, I'm going to keep bringing it up because that's what's happening in our culture today. Not an essential issue. A tertiary one. Not one to break 
or divide over. One that you can certainly have an opinion about and be well studied over, but not one to get angry at, especially with a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Uh, let's be honest, though. Most of us aren't surprised by that little specific list that I just gave, right? Um, we kind of know, or maybe we've matured to a point where we say we shouldn't argue about that kind of stuff. We've seen it cause damage both in and outside the church. And so, what should the church's reaction be to those kind of things? Or what should my reaction be? And typically, the response has been this. Ready? I'm going to walk lightly. I'm going to walk on eggshells. And maybe, just maybe, I'm not going to ever, ever, ever bring up anything controversial. I'm going to keep all my opinions. And I'm using that word opinions because it's in verse 1. I'm going to keep my opinions to myself. But what if my opinions are my convictions? What if I think I'm right? And that's the point. That's why he's writing it today. Because everyone is thinking they're right. In this case, Paul was right. <laughs> it's funny. It's not right and wrong, though. Paul was like more right. And we see that, and we're starting this new section of chapter 14 and a little bit into chapter 15, where Paul says, just flip the page and look at it with me. He says, we who are strong. So he's talking to the weak, and he groups himself with the strong. And so Paul thinks he's right. And so while those weak in the faith aren't totally missing it, Paul doesn't want the weak to stay weak. So how are we supposed to treat the ones who are weak in faith? And Paul says, you need to welcome them. Let's talk about welcome, okay? Uh, here's the definition. We just have a slide for you. It says, to take or to receive into one's home. Or another definition, to receive, to grant one one's access into your own or one's heart. Isn't that a great definition of welcoming? Some translations say, accept him. Like, if, if you're weak in faith, hey, you who are strong, accept him. And to the modern day, like, listener, to the modern ear, that just doesn't land for me. When I hear the word accept, I hear pacify him. Like, just passively um, acknowledge that there's a difference and move on and don't, like, don't disrupt and 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 start like kind of lobster walking you know like backwards okay this person thinks differently than i am i'm going to accept this person from afar because they think differently than me right just don't go near them anymore i just don't want trouble hey we're supposed to be a church of unity right so how unity is achieved is my passivity But welcoming is totally antithetical to passivity. 
Welcoming means to draw near. So this is the first test of an orthodox community. Do we welcome people? Do we draw near to each other? Not just when it's easy, but when we disagree. Anyone weak in faith in your life that you can think of, like right now? Maybe that you're having a hard time with? Maybe it's a family member or church member, someone in your community group. Maybe a dear friend where you're like, man, I thought we were so like-minded. We're not like-minded. What should I do? The Bible is telling you this morning to be welcoming, to invite them into your own heart. What does that mean? Because that is sometimes confusing with modern-day lingo with how you receive Jesus in your heart. Is it the same thing? And I would say it's, it's, it's likening to this, to grant access into someone's life, into your own life. So let me ask you this. Have you ever held anyone at a distance, emotionally, relationally? <laughs> you like... You know that person thinks this way, and so you don't quite let them into your own life. That's what Paul's getting at. Do you welcome them? So that to welcome someone would be to open up your heart to them, to, as Philippians says, to take an interest in them, to receive them into your, literally, into your physical home and listen to them, to ask them questions, to take time to know their story, to get to know what makes them tick. Why do they think that way? Why are they building their arguments and thinking and arriving at such a conclusion that's different than you? So true friendship, true community is not achieved by avoidance is achieved by welcoming. One quick example. I learned this from my dad. I think this is an excellent marital tool, excellent relational tool. It's this. My dad taught me to start off conversations with my wife like this. Help me understand dot, 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 dot. <laughs> right? So when she's saying something, not to... <sighs> Not to pounce or to quarrel, to argue, and to share your own opinions, but a person who's welcoming, who grants access to your own heart, says, help me understand why you're thinking that way. Let me hear you out on that. If we have a church that starts off conversations like that, if we have marriages that say, help me understand, God will be so glorified. So that's the first question, the first litmus test of an orthodox community. Are you, are we welcoming? Let's go to question number two. Number two, am I fully convinced? I'm going to read verses two all the way through five. Follow along with me. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains 
pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Verse 4, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And is a great verse. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Okay, so Paul says, when there's disputable matters, have you personally taken the time to be fully convinced yourself? That's the question. Am I fully convinced? Okay, so I heard about this story. Uh, It's a 17th century story. Neapolitan nobleman. He had fought more, uh, more than duels, okay? He killed... 14 people out of 20 duels. And all of the duels were over who was the greatest Italian poet. Dante Oris or uh, Erisotto. I mean, I never read the guy, but this is what he, okay? This is what he's dueling over. The story goes on that when he was seeking salvation on his deathbed, all right? The dude's about to croak. What are his last words? He admits that he never read either of the poets. Ah! <laughs> I know. Isn't that wild? You want to know my like commentary on that? I think this would classify as quarrelsome. Right? That dude's quarrelsome. 20 duels over two poets that he's never even read. Question, though. How many times have you seen people arguing where both sides don't know sufficiently the arguments that they're arguing for. It's called ignorance. It's called shared ignorance. It's called shared arguing. And both of them need to go home. And they need to get off social media. And they need to stop reading articles. And they need to do two things. To be fully convinced. Do you want to hear what they need to do? Number one. They need to get in God's word. How are you doing in this area? Are you reading the Bible? Are you dovetailing off of someone else's quiet times? Like Jesus said that man cannot live by bread alone. Like this stuff is your sustenance. Are you in it? Are you reading it? You wouldn't skip a meal, would you? Have that same urgency to eat and to be nourished by God's Word. Notice in this passage, though, it's not just a call to have a quiet time, but if you are in God's Word or if you're not in God's Word, it has communal effects. Isn't that interesting? It's not just about you and your time in the Word. When people are in the Word, they love better. That's the first thing. You need to be in the Word to be fully convinced. You know what the other thing is? You need to be in prayer. Okay? Don't just read the Bible and then head out to work. You need to go before the Lord in prayer. Your journals need to be chock full of specific prayers. 
Both of these disciplines, practices, or habits of grace um, necessitate you being alone with God. You've got to carve it out. You've got to work for it. You've got to strive to be alone with the Lord. Just you and God, with your thoughts, your heart, and His. I've been walking with the Lord for a number of years. I never get tired of someone encouraging me to get back in the Word. I need to hear it every Sunday. We need to be talking more about our time in the Word as a church. It needs to be more a part of our casual discussions. Hey, tell me, what, what are you reading in your quiet times? How's your time in the Word? Right? That is not um, a police like checkup. That is just common Christianity. Like very, like the verbiage should be just always on our lips. Okay? That's number two. Am I fully convinced? And it necessitates being in the Word and being in prayer. Number three, am I living unto the Lord? Am I personally, in my convictions, in my thoughts, my opinions, do I have those? And are they forming in such a way where my heart is living solely for the Lord and not anything else? Not just wanting to win arguments. Okay? Let me read the passage of Scripture. This is verse 6 through 9. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. A lot of honors, okay? Here's seven. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. All right, so here's just where we get a little bit more specific. Paul settles this whole debacle about diets and days, okay? So a little history. I believe that the the weak in faith in this passage are the Jewish Christians still living in Rome who are still, they still feel like, they still believe that they're bound to the Old Testament dietary laws and Sabbath laws. So they're going to avoid pork. They're going to avoid unclean meats uh, for fear that it might hurt them, might like, cause damage. So they're only eating vegetables, right? And they're still holding fast to the Sabbath laws. Is it wise to take regular times of rest? Yes, it is. Yes. Is it wise to have regular times of worship? Yes, it is. Is the Christian New Testament believer in the New Covenant bound to the Sabbath laws of the Old Testament? No, he's not. it's not binding. It is not binding. So we worship on Sunday mornings because of apostolic tradition. The apostles said, hey, how about we just meet on Sundays because Jesus rose on Sunday? Um, let's, let's just remember that. And so, therefore, the church ever since then said, that sounds like a good idea. First day of the week, let's do that. Not all that complicated, is it? Jesus rose on Sunday, let's meet on Sunday. But guess what? If you are a Christian, and if you still feel bound to honor the Sabbath, 
You're not out of bounds in terms of orthodoxy. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian. You're still in the game, <laughs> right? But Paul here is saying, I don't, I don't want you to stay that way. Like, that's, that's fine to hold to that. I'm going to still be kind, but I want you to grow up in the faith because the Christian has been set free from those laws. It's okay, especially in Cincinnati, to eat a good pulled pork sandwich. Can I get an amen? Man, Cincinnati does it well, right? This question, though, is are we, are we living for the Lord? Sometimes in hearing, like, the Word of God or a pastor explain, like, hey, both views are okay, it can come across as unsettling, right? Anybody with me? Like, man, I wish it was a little clearer than that. Come on, pastor, like, just be black and white, bro. Like, you're, it's a little squishy, isn't it? Like, how can you say that something is right, yet still say, that's okay? Is it that anything goes? No, no, but there is a fine line. Like, Paul, again, wants them to understand the full breadth, the full scope of Scripture, and he doesn't want them to stay there, but he's honoring in this portion of scripture he's honoring their heart's motive you see these guys firmly believe what they believe and they're living for christ they're living for god like all their all their thoughts all their like convictions they're sincerely wanting to honor the lord with their life what's their motive they just they're just living for jesus if that's the motive then it's okay but it is challenging, isn't it? It's challenging for the strong, too. For the strong, is everything that you believe out of a desire to just be right? Or is it out of a heart to please the Lord? Is your attitude, my life is His. And so I am going to believe my convictions are going to be only for him or am i just trying to build my kingdom instead of christ's kingdom those are the two things that test our heart status here's our last question for the day am i living as one who will give an account and here's the last few verses Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If you're taking notes, just here's the question one more time. Am I living as one who will give an account. So you see, when you've got a view of Jesus and eternity in mind, you no longer desire to pass judgment on the weak. That's not your concern anymore. 
your eyes are fixated on a different judgment. You're no longer concerned with judging in a sinful sense, passing judgment on others, but your heart is fixated on the judgment seat. Okay? Um, notice in this passage, just like, look, look at that verse with me. Notice how Paul doesn't like just spring forth into a large dissertation on judging and how to judge and how not to judge and things like that. I mean, judging is a big topic in today's world. I would think that he would spend more time talking about how not to judge. Like everyone, even non-Christians know Matthew 7. It says, uh, therefore do not judge lest you be... Everyone knows that one. It's like non-Christians' favorite verse, right? But Paul doesn't do that. He, He goes right into the judgment seat of Christ. So, a quick refresher on what is the judgment seat of Christ. Um, He's not talking about the great white throne of judgment. The great white throne is when all people come before the throne of God and He opens up the Lamb's book of life and if your name is written in that book, then you are granted access to God. You can come to heaven. You can come in God's gates and you will be with Him and you will enjoy Him forever. How do you get in that Lamb's book of life? You repent of your sin and place your faith and trust in Jesus to forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's beautiful. It's simple. It's not complicated. You go, I need Jesus to save me. I can't save me. If you have not received Christ today, um, someone's got to be honest with you. And it's my job today as the teacher of God's Word to be honest and say that you will not go to heaven if you have not received Christ. The people who are not in the book will be forever damned to hell. And there they will also spend eternity there. For forever uh, torture and forever darkness. And they'll never see the light of the gospel. They'll never see Jesus. That's the great white throne. But that's not this judgment. The judgment that he's talking about is the Bema seat of Christ. The Bema seat is only for Christians. So after you get in that gate, because he said, yep, you're in the book, well done, good and faithful servant, there will be another judgment. Nothing to be scared about, but something to know about and live in such a way as uh, with the knowledge that you will be held accountable. We learn about this judgment seat um, right out in your margin, 1 Corinthians 3, 10-17, and 2 Corinthians 5.10. Don't go there, but I'll just read it for you. Here's 5.10. It says, For we, that's believers, must all, befo- uh, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and may receive what is due for what He has done. That's the, the Bema seat of Christ, being evaluated and judged for how you, the believer, lived your life for Christ. Okay? If you need an image, 
It'll, it's like this, okay? Let's say you're walking into a carver's wood shop, and you just see the carver um, just carving away, just working away at this piece of wood. And there's wood filings everywhere in this carver's wood shop, okay? That's kind of like the Bema Seed of Christ. Like Christ is, is, is like coming up to you, the carving. And he is going to see what stands. What did you do in this life that was for Christ? And what did you do in this life that was for you and your kingdom? And he goes up to this carving and he goes like this. And all the filings, all the wood shavings, all the works that you did for yourself, everything that you had you in mind just goes to the floor. And what is left is for him. Your motives that were pure and right and for God alone. And then he looks at that carving and he says, based off this, I reward you. And that's coming. And it'll be a beautiful day. It will be a judgment day. And you need to live for that day. The closing verse today says that each of us will give an account of himself to God. It's in general. Like, generally, here are some things that God will judge you on. This is for believers. How did you spend your time? Did you waste it away? Or did you invest it in the kingdom of God? Number two, how did you use your gifts? Hey, when you became a believer, I gave you the Holy Spirit and I gave you spiritual gifts. Did you use them for my purpose? Or did you just let them rot? Did you let them rust? And number three, your motives. What was your heart's condition on all of the works that you did in this life? But specifically with this passage, what you will be judged on is how you treated the weak. How did you treat the weak in faith? So one day, you stand before Jesus. He just might say, hey, I gave you a whole bunch of weak people around you. Did you welcome them? Were you fully convinced? Did you live for me? Were you living for this day? I'll leave you with this. The goal should not be to keep the weak weak. The goal is that each of us, every one of us, should grow up in the faith. And this happens through the stronger pursuing the weak in faith, in love. Amen? Let's take communion together. And here's how I'd like to do it this morning. Um, communion is a time when as you know, before Jesus, before he, he died, before he um, uh, was buried, before he 
raised. He brought his disciples into the upper room and he told them, I want, you, I want to give you a meal and um, I want this meal to be a tool for the church for forever. Because he says, do this in remembrance of me, like do this continuously. And so I'm going to give you this meal and I want the meal to serve as a way to remember me. So sometimes in communion we go, oh, it's communion time. I got to confess my sins, right? But it's a, it's a celebratory meal of remembrance of Jesus. And Paul instructs us, he says, I want you to come and when you come, you need to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your life but I want the bread and the cup to serve as a way to remember me. And so here are four ways for our church this morning not to rush off, not to be like, end of the sermon, and let's, let's like think about lunch, but to spend time, an elongated time, remembering and cherishing our Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's how we're going to do it. Did Jesus... By the four questions that we asked this morning, what, am I welcoming? Am I fully convinced? Am I living unto the Lord? Am I living as one who will give an account? How did Jesus do that? You see, he in each of those questions modeled and fulfilled those perfectly. For instance, was he welcoming to the weak? Slam dunk. Of course he was. Remember when, when he said, hey, Peter, come out on the water, right? And Peter's looking at him, and he's like lock and step. He's gazing at him, and then he gets afraid, and he takes his eyes off Jesus. And what does the text say? He says, ye of little? That's right. Peter was weak in faith. What was Jesus' response? Let's learn from him. Let's cherish him. Did he go like this? Did he play hard to get and be like, you're going to have to find your own way back in the boat? It says immediately, immediately he put his hand down and he brought him up. Jesus helps the weak. And that should, that should be such an encouragement to us. That should be such an encouragement to all of us who are weak at times. Was Jesus absolutely convinced in all that he did. Isaiah 50, one of the prophetic servant psalms, talks about how the Messiah would set his face like flint. Which is this, this image or this word picture that said that he was going to persevere during the hardest times, during excruciating pains for a purpose, for a cause, that he was on mission. So much so, he wasn't looking left or right. He was determined to persevere. Why? Because he was going to purchase a bride for himself. That was his ambition. He was going to buy a people that would give glory to God, and he would get all the glory at the end of the day. He set his face like flint, he was fully convinced. What about this one? Did he live for God? Did Jesus have unwavering devotion 
to the Father. I know all these are yes, but like we're cherishing Him. We're loving Him. And when we bow our heads and, and consider His body and His blood, that these will inform your prayer life. These will, will help you go, Lord, thank you for doing this. Lord Jesus, I could never do it. Someone had to do it on my behalf. So did He live His life to the Father? Listen to John 10. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd, what does he do? He lays down his life for his sheep. And in verse 18 it says, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Lord Jesus, thank you for living your life for the Father by willingly laying it down for him. Lord, would you now, you who live in me, would you help me do that in the same manner? What about this one? Did he live as one who would give an account? Did he fulfill that which he commanded in us? It's tough to say because he's the judge, right? Like he's the one like relaying or, or doing the judging and calling to account. But listen to John 6, 38. It says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So our, our Savior Jesus willingly submitted himself to the Father and to his will, which is such a model and example to us. If we model Christ in these four areas as we approach the week, God will use you through his Son, Jesus Christ, and by his Savior. And so let's spend some time in prayer, okay? I'm going to ask uh, the worship team to come up. We're just going to sit in this for a while. We have time. We're not in a rush. And allow your prayer life to go to those specific images of Jesus. Not to just say, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for dying on the cross. Go there in your mind. Thank him for how he treated Peter. Thank him for his perseverance on the cross. Thank him for him being judge and ask him to help you this week live a life that is worthy of his calling. Let's pray. And then when you're ready, I'm going to ask you to come up, take the bread and the cup, and pray and celebrate Jesus together.